Thanks for listening to the podcast from Gary Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Wilson, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good morning, church. It's great seeing you here this morning as we conclude our uh, expositional series through the book of Romans. We've, over the past four years, done four chapters a year, verse by verse, and now we come to the end of the book, the end of chapter 16. And I have to admit that I'm somewhat um, uh, excited about finishing, but at the same time sentimental about it because I've enjoyed so much uh, studying this book together with you. And we entitled this series Righteousness Revealed because in the first chapter, Paul says that the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed to us through Jesus and that the way of being made right with God is through Jesus, his son. And so that's what the book is about. That's the theme of the book, that the only way to be right with God is through faith in Jesus Christ. And now as he concludes the book, he has like, it's almost like the way you would conclude a phone call. Uh, that there's these last-minute things he's thinking of that the Holy Spirit's inspiring him to say. And he briefly says something about this and then something about that. And so I've, I've titled this message, Gospel Guidance, Greetings, and Glory, because there's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And that's kind of how he concludes. And so we just want to follow verse by verse the way Paul does. And it reminds me of phone calls I used to have with my mom when she was still living when she was uh, before she graduated to heaven and and I would call her weekly usually on a Friday morning I, I would talk to her at other times but especially Friday mornings uh, it just seemed to be the time that she would receive my uh, sermon tape you remember tapes cassette tapes y'all remember that the older people explain that to the younger people what we're talking about uh, but we used to mail her a sermon tape on Monday. She'd get it by Wednesday, and she would have listened to it by Friday, and so I could talk to her about it. And it was always sweet to hear her, my mother, encourage me in my preaching. And after we would talk for a while, and we were about to hang up, she would always give me a little last-minute guidance, kind of like Paul does here. And it'd be like, you, you're looking too skinny. And I'd say, Mom, I have it. I'm not looking too skinny. You need, you need to take better care of yourself. And she would have like these things she would say to me. And then she would go, oh, by the way, uh, your Uncle Basil said to say hello. And the next time you're in, and then your grandfather said, and she would just like go through the list of greetings of people who had been asking about me. And then before we could hang up, you had to say, I love you. And you, and you had to hear her say that she, that she thanked the Lord for me and she was praying for me and these kind of things. And so it sounds, as I'm reading this last part of the chapter, it just feels like we're getting a phone call from Paul, like a phone call. And, and it's these last minute things he's saying to us. And so I wonder, do you have someone like that in your life? Someone you can talk to like that, 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 will, that will give you some guidance that you need to hear, that would give you some greetings, some warm fellowship, and, and would just draw your attention towards the Lord. Uh, I hope you have someone like that in your life, someone who really loves you and cares for you. May I say, I have good news for you today. Jesus cares for you like that. He cares for you like that. And if, and if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I pray before this message is over today that you would decide to follow him. That's, that's our deepest desire, and that was Paul's desire, is that people would hear the good news about Jesus and give their lives to him. And so as we look at this last section of, of Romans, the Apostle Paul closes his letter with a word of gospel guidance, greetings, and glory to God. And I believe even as clo closing this letter, he was showing them how to relate to people, 
uh, depending on where they're at and how to relate to God through the gospel. And I think as we look at the text today, we'll see three ways we can apply the gospel to how we relate and how we relate in our relationships. So let's look at the text, chapter 16, starting at verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God. Be glory forever more through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is God's Word. Amen. We're looking for three ways that we can apply the gospel to our relationships. Here's the first. Follow godly guidance on troublemakers and false teachers. We will always have relationships with people that they just make trouble everywhere they go. It seems to be that they leave a trail of broken relationships wherever they go. And Paul, he's not naming anybody specifically here. Uh, in fact, some might say what well, seems kind of abrupt. I mean, earlier in chapter 16, he's, he's saying, and greet this person and greet that person in Rome. You know, he's, he's greeting people. In fact, last week we had to read 27 names. You remember that? 27 names of people that Paul had heard about or knew personally that attended the church in Rome. And he would say, oh, say hello to such and such and say hello. to." And he named 27 people. I'm wondering who read, who read the scripture in your small group this past week? <laughs> I heard that my, in my son's small group, they said to him, hey, you read it last Sunday. You go ahead and read it today. Nobody wanted to read the, that section. There's a lot of names, 27 names. We've got eight names in this one. And these eight names that are in, in this latter part of the chapter are not people in Rome, but they're people that are with Paul in the city of Corinth where he's writing this letter from. Because he's never been to Rome yet. He wants to go. But he's writing from the city of Corinth, and he includes the names that we read today. But here, here he's kind of like all of a sudden saying, oh, by the way, watch out for people that cause trouble. Watch out. I appeal to you, brothers. I'm begging you, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles. Cause divisions. These are troublemakers. These are people who uh, they stir up trouble, usually through gossip. Or, or telling someone, hey, did you hear what such and such said about you? Like that. And they just stir up trouble. Now, sometimes it's because they're immature. They're a believer, but they're just immature and they need to grow. But sometimes it's because they're wolves in sheep's clothing. 
and they're sent there by the evil one to destroy the church. And it just depends. It's hard to know. So watch out for them. He gives two instructions, really. He says, watch out for those kind of people. And then he says, avoid them. Those are the two instructions. Watch out for them. Avoid them. Those who cause divisions, that's troublemakers, and create obstacles. The word obstacle is where we get the word scandal. They, they cause traps. They set traps for people, and they, they're false teachers. They, they'll teach something contrary to the doctrine, it says, that you've been taught. And they especially, if you go down and read, they especially like to deceive the hearts of the naive. That's in verse 18. They're attracted to the naive, the people that haven't been believers very long. They're attracted to them especially so that they can give them false teaching. Watch out for them and shun them. Avoid them. Uh, Notice some things here. He describes the type of person. Now, he doesn't name anybody because he's not been to the church in Rome. So this is not a specific warning. This is more like a general warning to the church at large. He's not even talking to any leaders. This is not a formal thing. It's just like, hey, I've I've been a pastor for a long time. I've planted churches all over the Roman Empire. I've got several decades of experience. Just watch out. I've seen this in in Galatia. I've seen this in Corinth. Just watch out for the kind of people that come in and just want to to stir up trouble. He says, watch out for them and avoid them. And he talks about, verse 18, some of their character traits. Such persons do not serve our Lord Christ. Their, Their goal, their motivation is not to serve Jesus. Well, what is their goal? Their own appetites, it says. Literally, um... The, the Greek says their own bellies, which is the way the King James translates it. It's their own appetites, their own bellies. They just, they just want to serve their bellies. In other words, that which feeds them. And it doesn't necessarily mean food. It could mean their pride. Often someone who has a low self-esteem feels like, oh, I got some information that maybe you don't know. And it makes them feel like they're, they're knowledgeable because they can gossip and tell you information about someone else. And it makes them feel important. And so they're feeding their pride or they're feeding some other motivation. And so their motivation is not to serve Jesus, but to, to feed themselves, to build up themselves. And how do they do it? A couple of ways that you might see them do it is smooth talk. See that in verse 18? their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive. Smooth talk, what is it? Smooth talk. You know what I think this means, especially in our time? It's someone who has mastered the way to speak at church. They've mastered Christianese, if you will. They've learned how to gossip by saying, it's a prayer request. You know what I heard? I was at the women's prayer meeting yesterday, and I heard such and such talking about somebody else who is about to lose their marriage, and I just think we need to pray for them. And what, what the, they're, they're couching it in prayer request language, but the truth is they're just gossiping. They're just gossiping. And what they're creating is, is, a, is, a, is a conflict, because now they, they're, they're causing the people that hear it to, to fall into sin and to begin to talk about it. And so they're good at smooth talking. You know, Satan was a smooth talker. He was a smooth talker. And there seems to be something in view here because Paul mentions Satan in verse 20. Remember how he talked to Eve? He was a smooth talker, man. He was like, did God really say? 
Like, you know, that's what Satan always does. He always questions God's Word. And he causes people to question God. Did God really say that? And she goes, yeah, I think He said that. And and He convinced her, now look at that fruit. Doesn't it look good? Well, yeah, it does look pretty good. And you know what? If you eat it, you'll be like God. He's a smooth talker. He was a smooth talker. And she was naive. And she fell for it. And so that's often the mark of a person like this. They're good at mastering religious language and coming across like they're really mature when they're not. And they use flattery. So let's say you're, I don't know, let's say you're a small group leader. And so this person's just joined your small group. And they will just build you up like you're the best small group leader. I've been in five different groups this year, but you're the best one I've ever been in this, this year. You know, I'm excited about being in your small group. And you're just the best. You, you just keep our conversations on track. And this person will just flatter. And so then the, the leader of that small group, the leader of that community group will be, well, you know, this person seems kind of disruptive, but they really like me, and I like that. And so they get kind of confused about whether or not they should correct this, this individual. And that's the way that works. And so Paul's just kind of given, he's just like, I've got a lot of experience about this, so watch out for people like this, because they will come into your neighborhood, your small group, your workplace, your church. They'll come in, and they'll cause divisions. They'll cause trouble. So watch out for them, and if they won't be corrected, shun them, avoid them. This is um, not putting them out of the church language here. This is not Paul speaking to the leaders here. He does that in other places, but here he's just, I think, talking to the average member of a church and saying, hey, if there's somebody like this, don't hang out with them because they're going to lead you into a disunifying situation in, in the church. It's good advice. He goes on. He says um, in verse 19, your obedience is known to all. He's speaking to the church believers at Rome, and he says, look, you're obedient to the gospel. I know that. I'm not saying you didn't already know about this warning. I'm just reminding you because it's important. Because I want you to be wise, he says. I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. In the Phillips translation, it says it like this. Uh, Romans 16, 19 in Phillips. I want to see you experts in good and not even beginners in evil. In other words, he's saying it like this. I want you to know good because of your experience. I want you to be wise at it. But when it comes to evil, I don't, I don't want you to be experienced at evil. I want you to be warned of it, but I don't want you to experience it. And so Paul's saying, I want you to be innocent of that. It reminds me of how Jesus talk to those he sent out to witness in Matthew chapter 10. He said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. It sounds like what Jesus was teaching. And then in verse 20, we, we see something. It, it, it seems unusual to me upon its, the first reading. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now when I first read that, I thought, I wonder why... I wonder why the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to say the God of peace. Why that attribute? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Why, why not say the God of the Lord of heaven's armies, the Lord of hosts? Why not say something, the God, you know, God Almighty, El Shaddai, like something like a war kind of language. No, he says the God of peace. But then the more I thought about it, the more perfect that is. 
Because Jesus didn't come as a warrior, as a judge. He came as a sacrifice and as a savior. He came as a peacemaker and he laid his life down on the cross. How did he defeat Satan at the cross? He defeated him by giving his life. He's the God of peace. He's the peacemaker. That, that seems, it seems ironic. It seems contrary to the way we would think about it. But that's, that's exactly how he did it. He, he defeats Satan that way. And he says, he will soon crush Satan under your feet. Speaking of the body of Christ. You see, he defeated Satan at the cross. He defeated him. He's the victor. But now we live in that season where the church is in like a parenthesis, if you will, between when Jesus was raised from the grave and he died on the cross and was raised from, and when he returns. And that's the season we live in. And that day when he returns, he will completely he will completely be victorious over Satan so that we as believers will no longer be tempted by Satan. He will soon crush him under that. So that's the season we live in. It's a, it's a time word, that word soon. But it, I think it basically means there's nothing between Jesus coming again in this moment. We could say Jesus is coming soon, and it could be this next second, this next minute, this next hour. It could be tomorrow or next year, but He's coming soon. And there's nothing between now and then to prevent Him from coming in terms of the way prophecy works. He will soon crush Satan. Satan's a real person. He's not an imagination. He's not a myth. He was a fallen angel named Lucifer. He was... Uh, the one who said, I will be like the Most High God, and he was removed from heaven. He was removed and cast down to earth, and he's been a tempter, an accuser, a liar from the beginning. And so here we see Paul saying that one day he'll be utterly defeated. If you'll re recall in the book of Genesis, the first, what some people call the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. It's found in Genesis chapter 3, where he said of the serpent and of the woman, he says, the seed of the woman, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And we all know that, that women don't have seed, which I believe points to the virgin birth. Okay, so that's in Genesis chapter 3. And we also believe that he's talking about Jesus, the Messiah, who's born of the virgin. And he's the one at the cross, his heel is bruised. In other words, he's, he's, he's sacrificed, but he was raised again on the third day, but he crushes Satan's head. There's no accident, I think, here that Paul's using some language that should be familiar to those that read the Bible. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And so he's talking about the importance of watching out for Satan and watching out for troublemakers. It says in Proverbs chapter 16, A troublemaker plants seeds of strife. Gossip separates the best of friends. And that's just so true. I've had some uh, people in the past come to me and say, Pastor, I need to tell you something. Come here, I need to tell you something. And they'll be like, such and such is uh, talking bad about you. And they'll begin to tell me. I go, don't tell me. Don't, don't tell me what they're saying. But really, I think you should know. Well, let me ask you a question. And th this would this be, be good for you because if you come with this same approach, then you'll be ready uh, to talk to me. Okay, so I'm kind of giving you some coaching. And this person's been talking bad about you. Well, let me ask you a question. What did you say to them when they were talking bad about me? Well, I didn't know what to say. Well, then if you're not going to defend me, 
Why are you telling me about this? Or, okay, do you want me to go to them and say, Johnny told me that you said such and such about me. And they, no, 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 I don't want you to mention my name. Okay, well then I got nothing I can do with this because now it's just gossip. That's all it is. And I can't, all I can do is feel bad because you told me I can't correct it. And so please, next time you hear somebody talk bad about me or somebody else in the church, correct them. You're the one who heard it. You correct them, right? And so this is how uh, we have to, they, they plant seeds of strife that grow up. And how do they grow up? By being repeated. By being repeated rather than addressed. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. He's basically saying that which Paul is saying. Watch out for false teachers. They come to you dressed as if they were sheep. On the inside, they are hungry wolves. Just watch out for that. Watch out for people like that. And shun them. Avoid them. Paul writes this to Titus. He says, if people are causing divisions among you, give a first and second warning. After that, have nothing more to do with them. For people like that have turned away from the truth, and their own sins condemn them. I'm not saying shun somebody just because they mess up. Paul's basically saying, give them, a, give them a warning or two. Find out if they'll repent. If you go to the person and say, you know, I feel like that prayer request is really gossip because it's not your prayer request. It's something you heard over here, and it might not even be true. And so I feel like we shouldn't be talking about this. Now, if that person really wants to grow in Jesus, it'll probably hurt their feelings that you corrected them, but they'll repent. They'll say, you know what, you're right. I, shouldn't have, I should not have said that. Please forgive me for gossiping. You're right, that was gossip. And they'll grow. But if they get like, mm, and they, and, they, and they just break off their relationship with you, and then they, they just conveniently decide to join a new small group or a new church or a new whatever, they just cut you off, then you'll know. You'll know that that person either was not ready to grow or they're one of those people that Paul's talking about, that Jesus is talking about, that we need to be on the lookout for. You know, cancer is a terrible disease. My father died of cancer. Uh, when I was only eight years old, we lost my daddy. It's a terrible disease. If you look it up in the dictionary, just a simple definition of the, 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 this cancer, it says this in the dictionary, a disease in which abnormal cells divide uncontrollably and destroy body tissue. That's the definition in the dictionary. And what makes cancer so terrible is that, as I'm reading here, Cancer cells consist of the patient's own DNA. And so the body can't tell that it's cancer, so then its, its immune response is limited because it doesn't, the body doesn't recognize it as an enemy. And so then it takes over the body until it kills the body. That's what makes cancer so deadly. And troublemakers and false teachers are like that. They're like cancer in the body of Christ. So we have to watch out for it. And early detection is what Paul is saying, and then warn them, and then warn them, because maybe they're not cancer, maybe they're just immature and they need to grow up, or maybe they are, and then they need to be asked to, to leave, to be removed. It's a hard teaching that Paul gives here, right at the end of his letter, but he loves these people in Rome, and he's given them this, this guidance. Chuck Swindoll uh, gives four questions that every church members should be trained to ask. He calls them truth filters. Listen to these four. They have to do with what Paul has written here. He says, the first question that we should ask, does, the, does what I'm hearing from this person agree with Scripture? 
The second one is, does what I'm hearing from this person honor my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Does what they're saying honor Jesus? Number three, does what I'm hearing from this person help me to become more like Jesus? Does it make me more godly to hear this from them? And then finally, does, does what I'm hearing from this person cause me to think more highly of my fellow brother or sister? Or does it cause me to think less of them? If what they're saying passes through the four truth filters, then you got no problem. But if not, then maybe we should watch out. This is what Paul is saying right at the end of his letter, right at the end of his phone call, if you will. He's going, hey, by the way, watch out for this. This will divide the body. And then he, he moves to greetings, which is our second thought that we have on the scripture here. Offer a heartfelt greeting to fellow believers in the Lord. Offer a heartfelt greeting to fellow believers in the Lord. As we've said, we had 27 people that he wanted to greet in our reading last week. Those were the people that live in Rome. Hey, greet, and he named 27 of them. And now this week, we're in the latter part, and he's saying, now these are the people that were with me in Corinth. They might even be sitting here with Paul as he dictates this letter. Because what, what we know is Paul didn't write this letter with his own hand. He dictated it to a scribe who wrote it. Well, Gary, how do you know that? Well, let's just look, and I'll explain it to you. Verse 22, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. That's who wrote, that's who was the scribe was, Tertius. Tertius, uh, it, it means third, number three. That's what it means. It's a slave name. Because often masters would name their slaves, you're number one, you're number two, you're number three, like that. They just give them a name like that. If you're looking for names, we got names here for you. Like if you've got so many kids, you just need to number them. Uh, we got Tertius here in verse 22. And then at the end of verse 23, we have Quartus, which means number four. It's, an all, it's also a, a slave name. But Tertius was probably a trained scribe. He had really good handwriting. He was trained to do this, and he could take dictation and just like write it down. And so just think about the book of Romans, this letter from Paul as coming warm from his heart and out of his mouth and through the, the pen of Tertius. So as the Holy Spirit would inspire Paul, just think about the, maybe Paul is just walking around dictating this. And Tertius is writing it. And, and he goes, well, Paul be like, hey, read that part back to me again. And he'd be like thinking about it a little bit more. No, that's not, that's not the way, that's not the way the Spirit wants me to say that. And then he would, and he would, and so then he gets to this part. And I wonder, was Tertius a believer when he started writing this letter? I bet it took a little while to write this letter. Was he a believer at the beginning? Maybe. But what if he was just like a guy that Paul hired in, in Corinth? But I believe at the end of the letter, by the end of the letter, he was a believer. Man, he'd been writing down every detail of the gospel for several chapters. And maybe Paul says, hey, Tertius, why don't, you, why don't you sign your name at the end too? Why don't you say hello to Tertius, who wrote this letter, greets you in the Lord. We know he's in the Lord. We know he's a believer because he, he signs it in the Lord. Of course, we have in Timothy in verse 21, and he says, my fellow worker greets you, Timothy. There's not a higher praise that Paul could give to someone than to say he's my fellow worker. He's my co-worker. He reminds me of my papa who, who uh, all he knew was hard work. And he would say to me, I tell you what, Gary, if a man doesn't work, I don't have much respect for him. 
That's, a, that's the, the grandfather I grew up spending summers on the farm with. He, he wouldn't really respect someone unless they worked hard. And Paul was, it seems to me, kind of like that. And he gives that to Timothy, that description. He's my fellow worker. And other places we know that Paul wrote two letters to Timothy. He wrote 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, he calls him my true child in the faith. In 2 Timothy, he calls him my beloved son. Oh, there was no one like Timothy in Paul's world. He loved Timothy like his own spiritual son. And, and then he names three guys, Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my kinsmen. That probably means they're Jewish. They're hanging out in Paul's uh, presence there. They're all there at Gaius's house. If you look at verse 23, I think they're all hanging out at Gaius's house. Paul doesn't own a house. Paul doesn't own anything except the shirt on his back. He travels from city to city and depends upon the hospitality of others. He owns some books and some letters and some writing tools, and he owns an outer cloak. We know these things because he asked for Timothy to bring them to him when he was in prison. But he doesn't own a house. But here they are all hanging out with him. Verse 23 says, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church. And so Gaius is... This is Gaius of Corinth, someone that, that Paul led to Jesus and actually baptized him. And Paul only baptized two people in, in Corinth. Uh, we know this because he says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. He, he baptized Gaius. Uh, the way he words that's unusual. And it's because he was upset at those Corinthians for their divisions. There were some troublemakers that got into that church, and maybe that's why he's warning the church at Rome about it, that got in there and some of them said, I'm a follower of Paul. And another group said, well, I'm a follower of Apollos. And these were both men of God preaching in Corinth. And they started saying, well, I'm going to start a new denomination called the Paul denomination. Well, I'm going to start a new. And they got in an argument. And they forgot that they were brothers and sisters in Christ through, through Jesus Christ. And they started saying, and Paul got upset about it when he heard about it. And he says, I, I'm glad the only two I remember baptizing among you is Christmas and Gaius. So stop, stop using me as a way of getting in arguments with each other. He goes, besides, I, wa I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So stop arguing about this kind of stuff. It's just a mark of your immaturity. And so he talks about it here, but I think it's the same Gaius. And here we see that Gaius is not only Paul's host, but the church meets at his house. Verse 23, Gaius who is host to me and to the whole church. So he's a small group leader. Church meets at his house. And they're all hanging out there, I think, when Paul, I think Paul wrote this letter in the home of Gaius with Tertius writing it down for him. That's beautiful, isn't it? That's like a family. And then he says, um, Erastus, the city treasurer, he's going, he greets you too. And I especially am drawn to that name because I've been to the ancient ruins of the city of Corinth. And because I've been there, I took pictures. I took photos. And you know what I have to do now, right? Because, because I see Erastus, you know what I have to do? I have to show you the photo I took, right? So here it is. So this is, this is a paver on a street that was built in the first century it's 2,000 years ago, and, and they, they discovered this paver, and there's Erastus. The, in Latin, the, the U looks like a V. That's Erastus right there. That's his name. And it goes on in Latin to say that this is Erastus, 
the treasurer or the, the city magistrate who paid out of his own pocket for this street, which was a common practice in Rome during those days that a, a prominent person, a person of means would be a patron who would pay for a certain section of the street and then they would get a big paver. This one's seven feet long. You can't tell. I tried to take a photo with a perspective, but I couldn't get a good photo. Every time I tried to take a photo, uh, this dog kept laying down on that paver. I liked it. And then, and then the, uh, the tour guide, he kept saying, come on, Gary, you're, all, you're holding us up. We've got to go to the next site. And I'm like, click, 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 trying to, get, trying to get a good picture of Erastus's paver. But you know why I show you things like this? It's because the Bible describes real people in real places. This stuff really happened. It's not mythology. This is real history. And this person, Erastus, was the city magistrate that paid for this section of the street at his own expense. That's what the paver says. And not only that, Paul talks about him being a helper in the book of Acts. Uh, we see this, and having sent, this is Acts 19.22, having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So I think either after a while, Erastus has now retired from being a magistrate, but he's a man of means, and he becomes someone that travels around and helps Paul. This is a beautiful story. These names are real people. And Paul is saying, now they're the ones with me at Gaius's house, and they send their greetings. It's kind of like when you're sitting at home sometime, and you've got your, uh, your spouse with you or your kids, and you're talking to Grandma. Oh, by the way, little Susie says hello, too. And you say, hello, little Susie. Hello, Grandma. It's like that. That's what's going on right here. That's what's going on. Hey, Tersus, you wrote this whole, you wrote every word I said down. Why don't you say hello to him? I, Tersus, greet you in the name of the Lord. You know. that's, what, that's what this is right here. It's family. It's relationship. It's how we greet one another. How do we do it? In the Lord. Remember last week, I, I told you, now this is a command that Paul gives us, but be careful about it because it might not go over as well as it did in the first century. And it's Romans 16, 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now that's, I suggested last week, maybe we should just greet one another with a holy fist bump. But the idea being that you greet one another like family. Now I've been to the Middle East and I know the practice of the Middle East. And you, it depends on the part of the Middle East you go to. Some parts of the Middle East, it's just like a, it's just like a one kiss. Some it's a double, like that. In, in Jordan, when I first went to Amman, Jordan, back in 2005, I was there to visit some missionaries. And, and, and I was greeted by someone, and Jordan is known for the triple kiss. And, and by the way, the men don't actually touch. I didn't know that. They kiss in the air, like, it's a triple. And if you don't know which side they're going to start on, that's a problem because you can break a tooth off trying to figure out how to move you. I found out it's just better just to hold your face still and let them do their thing, like that. Just, I just go, just straight, straight on, let them do the thing, because it's too confusing. I, don't, I, I would need rehearsal. To, to pull that off. But here, here he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. So this is, not, this is not a lustful thing. This is not a wrong thing. This is a family thing. This is, and so sometimes in my family, uh, we, we have people over at our house or something like that. And maybe they're from the north or from some other part of the world. Um, from the north, like that's some other part of the world. I didn't mean it like that. But anyway, <laughs> I apologize to those of you that are above the Mason-Dixon line. Um, but, but we're huggers. And we say, well, you know, we're from the South, so we're huggers. Okay, so we greet one another with a, with a hug, with a holy hug, let's say. And so some people are like, uh, you know, I don't do hugs. Okay, well, 
if you're family, learn to treat one another like family. Greet one another with a holy kiss, with a holy hug, with a holy fist bump. Treat one another like family. Don't skip over the names when you read the Bible. These are real people. And we'll see them someday in heaven. You'll get to say hello to Erastus and Sosipater and Tertius and Gaius and Timothy. Here's number three. We're right at the end of this, of this letter. Got just a couple more verses to go. Y'all ready to wrap it up? Here's number three. Give God the glory for the gospel through Jesus Christ. He's been talking about the gospel for 16 chapters. He's let everybody say hello to each other. And he's given some final warnings. And now he does this, this giving God the glory, which a, a big word that describes what it means to give God the glory is the word doxology. Doxa means glory in Greek. And logos means a word means the word. And so doxology means a word of glory. And that's what he's doing here. If you look at verse 27, he says, To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. These final verses, 25 through 27, are a doxology. And he does, he does something amazing here. He takes all the threads of everything he's written in, in, in Romans, and he pulls it all together in this doxology in, in summary fashion. But instead of just listing it like summary, he offers it up to the Lord as a doxology, as a glory to God for it, like that. He does it with three according to's. You'll see them there, according to the gospel, according to the revelation, according to the command. He does it with three according to statements, uh, three means by which God will strengthen us that he asks for. I would remind you how the book began. It says in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So that was, that was like his theme for the whole book that he puts in the first chapter. So when I'm revealing to you now is this gospel, which is the, that you can be made right with God. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek, you can be made right with God. But now he begins to close and, and kind of pull at all the threads. He says, now to him who is able... This is the second attribute he's mentioned here of God. Earlier he said the God of peace, and that's an attribute of God. But he says the God who is able, the Greek word underneath that is dunamis, which is where we get the word dynamite, dynamic. The God, the God who has power of like dynamite, that God, that's who I'm... Now to him, he's able to strengthen you. And how's he going to strengthen you? And he gives ways well, going to strengthen you according to, and he names three uh, means, according to my gospel. And if you think about it, that's how he starts in Romans. In like Romans 1 through uh, 8, it's all about the gospel. He's describing the good news. It's the doctrine of the gospel. And he mentions here, he goes, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now, are you bothered that Paul says it's his gospel? But it's okay if you think about it. Think about it for a second. He's not claiming authorship. He's just claiming ownership. Think about that. He says, it was according to the preaching of Jesus and the preaching of Jesus. Did you see that? 
So it's, it's not his gospel. He didn't author it. It was revealed to him. But he owns it. He made it his own. Have you? Have you made the good news yours? Every one of us in this room, I pray before you leave today, if you haven't already, you're able to say, it's my gospel. It was my, it's my good news. I've made it mine because I've said yes to it. And Paul says, according to my gospel, I want, I want you to be strengthened. I want God to strengthen you with his dynamic power according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus. So that you just down to, from the top of your head to the bottom of your feet, you, you're empowered by the gospel so that it has become yours as well. That, that you're forgiven by faith in Jesus, that he has counted your sins upon Jesus, so he died on the cross for your sins, and so that now sin is no longer accounted to you, but righteousness is now accounted to you because you've said yes to Jesus. I, I pray that God makes you able, and he strengthens you through that. And he talked about that for eight chapters, but here he says it in one, one statement. He's summarizing here in the form of a doxology. And, and then he says, according to... The revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Now when the Bible uses the word mystery, it's not like a mystery book or a mystery novel or a mystery movie where the whole time you're trying to guess who done it. And maybe you'll get it right. Like maybe you hit pause and you turn to your spouse and go, I think it's him. I think he did it. Like that. No, it's not like that kind of mystery. It's a secret that no one could discover. Unless God reveals it. So when, when the Bible uses mystery here, it's a secret. And, and he says it like that. Paul says it like that. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed. What's the secret? That Jesus, when he died on the cross and became the Savior, he would be the Savior of the whole world. Jew and Gentile would be one in Christ when they believe. The prophets didn't see that one coming. It was kept from them. And so Paul talks about that for three or four chapters in the middle of the book, like 9 through 11. He's talking about Israel and, and the Greeks and the Gentiles and how the gospel works. And there, there he is. He's summarizing it here in this doxology. But has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. According, And then he's got one more according to, according to the command of the eternal God. And what's that? What's, what's God's command? What's given to us through His Son Jesus and the commandment is this, that we should go therefore and make disciples of all nations so that everyone is able to hear the gospel. And he's, he's summarizing this. And, and so then chapters 12 through uh, 15 are the prescription of, of how to carry the gospel and, and how to apply it to our own lives. Paul's summarizing it all in this beautiful doxology. It's amazing. It's like the magnus opus of, of, of books of the Bible. The Holy Spirit has inspired Paul to write this beautiful piece that we have in our hands today to study and to, to reflect upon. And he, he finishes, he can't just say, in conclusion, no, he's got to go. All oh, glory to God. He, he, he has to recognize that everything that I've told Tertius to write down, you told me to say. It's all from you. Like that. He has to finish. He can't finish any other way. He can't just put a P.S. at the end of this letter. No, he's got to finish with a glory to God. At the end of this letter, to the only wise God, we see another attribute of God named here. 
be glory forevermore. What is glory? It's that which can be made known. You see, the, the, the gospel, its goal, it's to see you come to, it's to see you be made right with God. The gospel has a goal, it's that you would be made right with God. But it has an even greater goal, is that having been made right with God, you would give glory to God. And, and glory, I always try to get my mind around, what is glory? It's that which can be, it's that which is revealed about God. It, you can't look at the sun, because if you do, you'll go blind. You can't look directly at it. So you kind of look at it with your peripheral vision, kind of. But what you see is the glory of the sun. You see the spectrum of light. You see the light. You, you can't look directly at it, but you can see what it reveals. And it's the glory of the sun. And and, and the Bible talks about how the glory of man is woman. And I think it, it, it hints at beauty at that point, that, that the beauty of man is woman. Uh, that he did this intentionally, that she's the glory of man. And the church is the glory of Christ. And we're to be those that give glory and praise to the Lord because of the gospel through Jesus Christ. And, and so we're to be the the beautiful bride of Christ, the glory of God. This is the goal of the gospel. And he closes with a doxology. I was brought up in a church that when the deacons brought the offering plates after they had collected the offering, they would bring it back up to the Lord's table at the front of the church. And as we would see them walking down with the plates stacked, we would just automatically stand. No one told us to. The music minister never stood up and said, now let us stand. There was no words on the screen because there was no screen. We all just stood. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise God. Yeah. What, what's the next word? Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You got to throw the amen in. And so we would give glory to God for our ability to make an offering. It's good to give glory to God. This week is Thanksgiving when we give God thanks for our, our many blessings. When we give God glory. And that's how Paul closes. He gives us guidance on troublemakers. Warn them. And if they won't listen, avoid them. Don't let them destroy your family, your church, your small group. Lovingly warn them. Give them a chance. And don't forget to hug on each other and tell each other how much you love each other. And make sure this week especially you tell as many people as you can because you never know if you'll see them tomorrow. Always tell them you love them. And then finally, give glory to God for Jesus and for the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this amazing book of Romans. For in it we see the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves. And I pray for that person in my hearing right now. Maybe you're watching online right now. Or maybe you're seated here in front of me. You might be in the venue next door in our gathering place. Wherever you're at right now, you can do business with God. He can hear you. He, he knows what you're thinking, what you're feeling. Would you pray to him right now? If you've never given your life to Jesus, I invite you to do it right now. And 
All you have to do is really decide to follow Him. He's already done all that's necessary to make you right with the Father. You could pray like this, Dear Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, but I believe You died on the cross for my sin, that You were raised from the grave on the third day, and that You live today. I believe that. I believe that with all my heart. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. Make me a child of God. I want to follow you as my Lord and my Savior. If you're praying that prayer, believing in your heart, then He will save you. He'll make you a child of God. This is God's righteousness revealed through the gospel of Jesus. You can accept it right now. Be made right. Others are here and you've already made the decision to follow Jesus, but would you hear what we heard today from the Holy Spirit. Be careful, be on a watch about those who want to divide. And if you've had trouble with that, if you look at yourself today and say, I need to be corrected, I need to repent, then do it right now in prayer. Say, Lord, forgive me for those places where I've gossiped or I've caused division. Help me to repent of that and to turn everything over to you in my life. I want to be one who loves each other in the Lord as you've taught us. Oh, Lord, we give you all the glory now and all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.